you've ever taken a stroll through a graveyard, it might be a good idea for you to do that because you can get a new perspective on life. You realize that your day is coming. It's amazing what you find on some tombstones, epitaphs. epitaphs. Uh, somebody said he saw one on an epitaph. It said, Beneath this sod lies Annabella Young, who on the 26th of May began to hold her tongue. <laughs> you can tell a lot about what somebody, about a person by reading their epitaph. What's going to appear on yours? On every stone, I can tell you something that will be on every stone that reveals your life and mine. It'll be on everybody's tombstone, reveals your life. It's a little horizontal line that's just about that long and it's placed there between two dates, just a dash. That is the picture of your life. And, and, and it's really a pretty good picture because when you put your life up against in time, against eternity, it's just a flash and then it's gone. It's like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. We want to pause tonight in our study of the life of David and we want to look at a man who was an arrow in his side. His name is Saul. We want to see first of all his epitaph. Carl Sandburg said in one of his chapters, the great uh, biography of Lincoln, that you, only, you can only measure a tree when it has fallen. What he meant by that was that you really can't... Uh, Get a good perspective on one's life until you measure it from one's death backward. I want you to look first of all at what is Saul's epitaph. It's found in the 26th chapter of 1 Samuel and the verse is 21. And it's an epitaph that could have been written on his tomb if there had been such a thing. Just five words. Verse 21 of chapter 26. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, here is the epitaph. I have played the fool. It didn't have to be like that, really, because this man at one time stood head and shoulders above every other man in more ways than just his physical stature. He was the pick of the litter. He was the one man that you would vote most likely to succeed. He was the man chosen to be the king. It didn't have to end like this. Nobody had to write this epitaph upon his tombstone. It didn't really have to be like this. I have played the fool. J. Sidlow Baxter said, what that means is this. A person plays the fool when he neglects godly friends. And he plays the fool when he goes on an enterprise for God before God sends him. And he plays the fool when he tries to cover up his disobedience by religious excuses. And he plays the fool when he persuades himself that he's doing the will of God when he knows down deep inside that it's all a lie. 
And he plays the fool when he allows jealousy to master, enslave, and degrade him. He plays the fool when he knowingly fights God. A man plays the fool when he turns from God and seeks an alternative in spiritism. And all of these things Saul did. But it didn't have to be that way. I want you to ask yourself tonight this question. Is my Christianity genuine? Is my Christianity authentic? And if the one who knows the secrets of my heart and life were to write with his finger on the tomb over my grave, what would he put there? This man was a fool and he lived a foolish life and he died a foolish death. And chapter 31 is his obituary. I want you to begin reading with me in verses 1 through 6. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled from the, before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavily against Saul and the archers hit him and he was badly wounded by the archers. The Latin Vulgate says that he was wounded in the abdomen. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. What a tragic end to a man's life. There are two significant wars that are raging here. There is a war that is raging, the physical war with the Philistines, but there is an even greater war that's taking place in the heart and mind of a man. And this struggle that is going on, this, this uh, wild battle that's taking place in his, in his mind is greater than any war taking place outside of him. And he's afraid that if he dies, these men will come and make sport of him. Um, John Tolan has a biography of Adolf Hitler. His death parallels Saul's. For Adolf Hitler had that same kind of fear that when he died, somebody would take his body and, and, and gloat over it and make sport of it. And so he had this elaborate plan. And he was with this woman, this mistress, and they had this... Uh, strategy divide uh, planned so that he would take poison and she would shoot herself. At the sound of the gun he had this man stationed outside to come in and he was to uh, pour gasoline on their bodies, set them on fire and he was to take the remains and put it in a container and bury it in a ditch so that nobody would ever find his body. Saul was worried about what people would say about him wasn't that much concerned about what God thought. There are six biblical accounts of suicide. These two 
The third account of suicide is the account of Samson's suicide found in Judges chapter 17 verse 30. The fourth is found in Samuel, first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17 verse 23 where Ahithophel strangled himself. I never understood how he did that. The fifth account is found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 18 where Zimri set fire and burned himself to death. And the last, of course, is Judas. And when you study the lives of these men or others who have committed suicide, I think there is a common denominator in every one of them. And the common denominator is that usually a person who commits suicide is living with pressure and these pressures are such that he cannot cope with them or he's backed himself into a corner and suicide seems to be the best way out. Let me give you some facts about suicide. Every minute in America somebody attempts suicide. Seventy people in the 24-hour period we call Sunday will have killed himself in America, will kill themselves in America. One, out of, one every three minutes... In the last decade, suicide among people under, under 30 has increased 300%. It is the second leading cause of death among teenagers and the ninth leading cause of, uh, of death among adults. A woman is three times more likely to attempt suicide than a man and four out of every five people who kill themselves have tried to kill themselves before. It's a major problem that is growing at alarming proportions. Brian Harbour has done his study on suicide and he asked three questions. I, I, I'm going to try to give you something practical. You might want to jot these down. First question he, the question he asked is, why do people kill themselves? And he said there are three basic reasons why people commit suicide. One has to do with punishment. Like Samson, they... They want to punish somebody else. You know, he pulled down the house of the Philistines on top of them and destroyed them. Or like a, a, a Hithopel, they do it to avoid punishment. They know that punishment is coming, and so they take suicide as a way out. I, I, I think I know some people who fit in that category. Or they do it to punish themselves. It is an amazing uh, statistic or fact of the number of people who kill themselves in a, in a, in a jail cell. The reason why, I, I, I think, psychologists suggest, is because they feel so guilty of what they've done, they punish themselves with the ultimate punishment. The second reason Brian Harbour says that people will kill themselves is because of the problems of life. The problems of life, as in Saul, I, I'm, I'm dealing with something that's just a terrible problem for me and I can't handle it. I went to a meeting this last week and I heard a man talk about death and dying. He was a pastor of a church in Oklahoma City. It was a, it's kind of a coincidence. When I was in Oklahoma City, I, I read the obituary of, uh, about this young man who had committed suicide, who was 
a, a concert pianist who performed in Christian churches. Uh, uh, and, and it just so happened the guy who was delivering this lecture on death and dying was this boy's pastor. And he told about that experience. It happened about three weeks ago. And he said this boy had um, graduated from OBU and he was do doing his master's work out in southwestern uh, state out in, at Weatherford and he, he wasn't doing good in his master's program. He got behind in his piano training, etc. And he just began to feel that he had so many problems he couldn't deal with. So he took his life. Said Brian Harbour, the third reason people will kill themselves is because of pressure, the pressures of life, the stress that life places on people, the pressure to succeed, the pressure to be popular, the pressure to be important, the pressure of grades, the pressure of dress, the pressures that people deal with. Second question that Harbour asked in this marvelous paper on suicide is this. What are some signs to look for? And he lists about three or four of them. First is attitudinal change. An attitude of hopelessness and despair that we feel. A feeling that life is, is, is hopeless. He said then there, there be, then there are behavioral clues. And he lists some of them. Maybe you want to jot these down. One is the, that, that a person will go and get insurance coverage, you know, all of a sudden, put a lot of insurance on himself. Then they'll obtain a means of suicide. They'll buy a weapon, a gun, or whatever. Third is they begin to isolate themselves and they withdraw from their family. They go into their rooms and they'll spend long hours in isolation. He said sometimes they'll consult a physician or they'll leave a note then he said there is often the shift in behavior so that a spendthrift, a person who is chinchy, will begin to spend money freely and a quiet person will begin to talk incessantly. I don't know how many times I've heard this happen. Where, where somebody will come, to, they'll say, well, I've just talked to him a couple of days ago and he seemed so happy. He was just open and talking. It was just unusual how, how happy and carefree he seemed. And then he said there are these verbal clues, these statements that people make. When a person begins to talk about taking his life, you need to take that seriously. And when a person says he's going to kill himself, you don't need to take that as an idle threat. Sometimes that's a cry for help, verbal clues. Then he asked the third question, what can we do about helping somebody who has the desire to, to, to end his life. He said there are two or three things. One, he said, we can pray for them. Now, I know that sounds pretty simplistic, and you'd expect a preacher to say that, but we can. You can lift these people up to God and hold them there in prayer. He said you can talk to the person. The old idea that if you talk about suicide gives them the idea to do it is a, is a, is a myth. Talk to them about it. Third, fake, focus on the problems and the resources. This is the real problem and here are the resources that we have. And he said you can be honest with them. You can tell them that this is a permanent solution to a temporary, to a temporary problem. 
Then he said, make a contract with them. Draw it up and say, listen, before I will do anything drastic, I promise that I'll contact you or I'll get help. I'll call somebody before I decide to do this finally. And you get them to sign it and you sign it with them. And then he said, sixth, you can affirm your love for them because many times a person who will commit suicide is a person who is starving for some love. Now here was Saul under the problems and the pressures of his life and it seems like that there was no way out for him so he took his life. Look at verse 8 in chapter 31. And it came about on the next day that when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of the Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethsan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabeth-Gilead heard about the Philist, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Edersheim has a marvelous book on church history and he describes this final act in the life of Saul this way. He said, The headless bodies of Saul and his sons, desecrated by everyone, swung in the winds of Bethshan to the hoarse music of the jackals and the vultures. It didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to end like this. He had so much promise. It's the first account, the only account really in the Bible of cremation. Now when you see something in the Bible and that's the only place you find it, you might want to make a little note of it, put an underline there, underline it. It's the only place in the Bible where there is an account of cremation. Now there, is a pl there are places where they're told to cremate bodies. Remember Achan? It was the form of ultimate punishment, but it is the only account in the Bible where one was cremated. And there really is no um, instruction or no um, help from the Bible with regard to, to the uh, acceptability of cremation. Now some people will say, well now, you know, I, can't, I just can't you know, feel right about cremation. I mean, you take someone's body and scatter the, the ashes out. What about when the Lord returns and we're going to get a new body? Well, Jesus, the Lord can handle that. I mean, He can take that body that's been cremated and the ashes scattered on the, on the lake or whatever, and He can fashion a new body. He's not going to have any problem with that. As a matter of fact, the same God who created everything out of nothing can fashion the new body when the Lord returns. And I think the real guideline at this point is that a person must have his own preference of how he's to be buried and he must have peace with God when he does it. Now there is a marvelous 
analogy here in the life of Saul as it relates to the death to the death of Saul as it relates to Christ's death. I want to give you these six, then we'll go home. You might ask, I don't see how in the world, how is it that Saul's death and Christ's death could parallel in any way? Let me show you six things I see. Saul's death appeared to be the end of a national hope. Christ's death appeared to be the end of a spiritual hope. Now when Saul died, all of his men died with him. And it appeared to be the end of the nation of Israel, the end of it. When Christ died, didn't His disciples say, this is the end and we have pinned all our hopes on a loser. It appeared to be the end of a spiritual hope. Secondly, when Saul died, it seemed as though the adversary had the final victory and they took the body of Saul and his sons, all of those who would receive the kingdom handed down, they took their bodies and they took them back to Bethshan so they could celebrate the good news, the scripture says. The adversary had, we won the victory. When Christ died, I'm sure that Satan strutted down the halls of hell itself and boasted of his victory. Third, when Saul died, it paved a way for an entirely new plan of operation. A new man takes over here. A new kingdom's going to be established. The kingdom of David that will extend to the ends of the earth the greatest, most glorious kingdom of any king. When Jesus died, a new kingdom was established for He said, My kingdom is not of this world and the spiritual kingdom that involves all believers who have Jesus Christ in their heart was established. When Saul died, it opened up the throne room to David. When Jesus died, it opened up the satisfaction there was so much travail and turmoil in the land. When Jesus died, it ended an era of the law which was unable to meet need and fulfill human obligation. When Saul died, it displayed the foolishness of men. He played the fool. Now understand what I'm about to say. When Jesus died, it displayed the foolishness of God. Now let me show you what I mean. For the Bible says that it was by the foolishness of the cross, the scandalon, the things that men despise, humility and suffering and death, by the things that men seem foolish, God has redeemed the world. And thus when Saul died, that was the end. When Jesus died, it was just the beginning. Would you pray with me? Father, for these moments...
of response and decision, we pray for your will to be done. Because I ask in Jesus' name. There are three invitations tonight. And it, our, our song, by the way, is 353, if you'd like to turn. Listen to these invitations. An invitation tonight to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Declare your faith in Him. Somebody said to me tonight after, as I came in here, that beautiful baptism made it worth, that makes all the effort worthwhile. Would you like to give your heart to Christ tonight and follow as these did their example? An invitation for you to join the church. An invitation for you to commit your life in a deeper and more appropriate walk with Christ. So our invitation is God's invitation, your response. We pray for your response while we stand to sing. Would you come?